podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. This is our Eintracht Frankfurt review episode. And I am joined by a guest to help me out with that. He is certainly no stranger to the podcast, but it's been far too long since we've had him on. Vincenzo Bertillo, welcome back. Happy as always to be back on, Joe. Can't wait. Yeah, no, neither can I, because so far, every guest I've had on, it's been just nothing but smiles because we just (laughs) keep on rolling with these victories. But it is always a pleasure to have you on. So let's get right into the review As I'm sure everyone is very much aware by now, Napoli beat Eintracht Frankfurt 2-0 at the Deutsche Bank Park on goals from Victor Osimhen and Giovanni Di Lorenzo. Vin, let's start with just some general thoughts on the match, because I have to say my emotions are very confused at the moment. Like, how are you feeling just generally with the outcome? What were your expectations going into the match? And and how are you feeling coming out of that with that 2-0 win? Going into the match, I was cautiously optimistic. I think that Frankfurt is a good team from what I've seen. And of course, at home with their very passionate fans, I knew that that would give them an extra edge. But I also have become extremely confident in this Napoli, in our ability and also in our mentality, which has been a huge leap from the past. These players play with no fear, even those with the least experience. So... I was cautiously optimistic. If you would have told me ahead of the game that we would walk out away from home with 2 nothing, I would have been very, very happy with that. I think it's, it's a phenomenal result. If you compare, look at Man City, they went to Leipzig, a very comparable team, and got a 1-1 draw. So definitely it's a good result. Watching the game, sure, we could have scored another two or three goals, but the fact that it's that that we can kind of complain about oh, we didn't beat them 5 or 6 nothing. We only beat them 2 nothing at this stage in the Champions League, which is the very ceiling of where Napoli has been in the past. I think we should be very happy with that. Yeah, and that's exactly why I say my emotions are confused because I had predicted a 2-2 draw, so I should be thrilled with a 2-0 victory away from home, no less, right? Like it wasn't even at the Maradona. And I I think a lot of people might have been underestimating the quality of this Frankfurt side, right? Because you look at the teams that are remaining and there are, you might say sort of like a lot of names, a lot of big names, teams that are historically very strong in the competition. But this year, the likes of Liverpool and and even Real Madrid as I mean, you never want to count them out in the Champions League because this is their competition, but they're struggling a little bit in La Liga. There's a lot of clubs that are not that are underperforming expectations as City. Man City, you could probably put them in that category too, although they're pretty much caught up to Arsenal now. So I think people might have been underrating Eintracht Frankfurt a little bit, but I felt a little bit frustrated watching this match because we did have so many chances and I feel like we might have been able to put this tie to bed in this first leg had we converted some of those chances. Like we had Lozano hit the upright and then right after that we miss a penalty kick. 
Osiman had that second goal ruled out by the VAR correctly, but it was so narrow of a decision. We had that chance by Cavada in the second half that Trap made a big save on as well. So as you said, we easily could have scored five or six goals in this match. The other angle on it is once Kavara missed that penalty, or I should say once he had the penalty saved, in the past, away from home, you would think that could actually hurt Napoli's chances. Perhaps we would get in our heads a little bit, start to feel like it's not our day. And the fact of the matter is most of these chances, both the ones we scored and the ones that we came very close to scoring, all happened after that. So I thought we had a phenomenal response. And yes, of course, it wasn't the perfect game because we would have had a higher conversion rate. But again, I still think that we can only be happy with this result. And it may not be as put to bed as a 4 nothing would be, but 2 nothing away from home, I mean, we would have to have a monumental collapse in our Stadio Maradona to not walk through into the quarterfinals, in my opinion. I actually thought there were two positives to take away immediately after that penalty miss. The first for me was a picture that I'm sure you've seen by now. I'm sure everyone has seen by now, which was Victor Osiman literally holding up the chin of Cavada after the miss. And, you know, we've talked about it on this show before about how Spalletti's asked Osiman to play more of a leadership role this year. And he seems to have really embraced that. And so the clear message there was lift your chin up, I'll do it for you. Uh, Don't get down because you missed that penalty. And then the second positive was the fact that not just Cavada, but the whole team, the way they reacted after that missed penalty, like Osiman's goal was scored, I think, four minutes later. I think the penalty was in the 36th minute, and we opened the scoring in the 40th minute. And not even just from that point, really after that opening 15 to 20 minute spell where Frankfurt were playing really well. Personally, I think that's pretty typical when you're playing at home and you have that energy of the home crowd behind you and Napoli kind of weathered that storm. And from that point on for the remaining 70 minutes, we completely dominated this match. I think really there was only one chance where Frankfurt nearly scored. I think it was in the 80th, 81st minute where Kamada had a chance on the break. And fortunately, he just kind of bounced the shot straight at Medet. But other than that, it was a, a pretty dominant performance. One of the reasons why or what helped make it a dominant performance was the fact that Randall Kolomani picked up a red card early in the second half around the 58th minute. Do you think that was the correct decision to give him the red card there? Well, first of all, I'll say that even though I'm sure that helped put the nail in the coffin for that game, if you watched the game, meaning not you, but anyone who watched the game, I think we were in control of that game anyway and likely would have had a very similar outcome, maybe even scored more because they actually sat back after going down to 10 men. If anything, they closed the spaces. So part of me almost wishes that he didn't get the red so that there would be no excuses and we maybe would have scored more. But in this day and age, in the, in the way that the rules are interpreted today, that is a red card, whether or not he intended to stomp on Zambo. I'm not thinking in my mind that he wanted to, but at the end of the day, it's not up for a ref to be a psychologist, right? It's the same as like manslaughter. I might, have, I might be driving and hit somebody. I, maybe I didn't intend it, but if I hit someone, I hit someone. Same kind of thing here. The player was unlucky in that he probably never meant to do it. But to me, in the way that the rules are interpreted now, it is a clear red. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's pretty clear that there was no malintent, and so maybe it was in, unfortunate in that sense. I think you're always taking a little bit of a gamble when you go into a tackle like that. I mean, he got the ball, but he had to kind of lunge to get the ball in the first place, and that left his studs up, and he kind of exposed himself to that risk of stomping on Angisa there. So, yeah, I think that was the correct decision. He'll be a pretty massive loss for Eintracht Frankfurt heading into the second leg at the Maradona, but Frankfurt do have a pretty good backup in Rafael Bore. I think that's something that people should just keep an eye on or don't assume that just because they lost Colomani that Frankfurt can't score. Bore was their number nine last season. Now, he wasn't as prolific as Colomani is this season. I don't. Need, I mean, Colomani has already surpassed his total. He scored 12 goals in tally data assists across all competitions last season, but he did score the equalizer in the Europa League final. So, you know, he's got some big plays uh, in his back pocket. So that's something um, to keep an eye on. Going back to the the penalty kick, for all the things that Napoli are great at, it seems like penalty kicks are not one of them. And I mean, maybe that's not, you know, you kind of take that trade off. Okay, we'll, we'll accept being bad at penalty kicks to be pretty great at everything else. I mean, offensively, defensively, everything's clicking right now. But given that, this is a cup competition and that we're now in the knockout stage of the competition. There is the potential, whether it's, you know, in the second leg of this tie, or hopefully if we advance to to future rounds, there's the potential that we could find ourselves in a penalty shootout at some point. Is that something that concerns you this rather low conversion rate from the penalty spot? It's not something that I'm happy about, but at the same time, I think, you know, we had a designated penalty taker in Insigne for a long time. And okay, he didn't score every penalty, but he was fairly consistent for us. And with him being gone, we've been able to fill his shoes as far as on the pitch performances, but maybe less so in terms of finding who the right guy is to be our designated penalty taker. So there's kind of two things. Is One is having a designated penalty taker. Another thing is a shootout where you're going to have to have five or six shooters, right? In terms of having one penalty taker, personally, I would stick with Kvada. I think he has probably the best technique. And, you know, this was his first time in a Champions League, you know, in the Champions League altogether. He took a penalty and it wasn't the greatest penalty, but it also wasn't a terrible miss. You know, it was saved. Could it have been more in the corner at a, or at a little bit of a, either lower or higher? Yeah. But it also was, it was, it was still on target. It was still a hard shot. And because of that, I would keep the faith and go with him. And, and I think that, you know, we've seen Insigne have a miss or two and then go on a run where he could score a bunch. So I think that Kvara has the right mentality that he can continue. As far as getting the rest of everybody else, we can practice as we go. But at the end of the day, it's really a coin toss when we're talking about having five or six shooters. You know what I mean? It's about how they're able to keep their calm in that moment because I think every single person, including Spalletti and maybe even Tommaso, are capable of scoring from that distance. It's just about how you're feeling. And don't forget also, you know, their fans were really loud during the game. It's something that I think we can improve on because there's very little for us to improve on. So if that's a kind of a designated area of weakness that we can try practicing for, great. At the same time, I think if that's our biggest problem, that we might 
go deep in the Champions League and have to play a, a penalty shootout, which we're not that experienced in, then whatever. I could kind of live with that if, if you get my drift. Yeah, absolutely. And I would stick with Cavada as well. I completely agree. It wasn't a terrible miss. I was even fine with the placement. I was definitely fine with the power because he hit it hard. Sometimes the keeper just guesses the right way. I think the one that you mentioned that where he could have done better is generally you don't want the ball waist height. You either want it on the ground or you want it in the top corner because those are the more difficult areas for the keeper to get to. But I don't feel like it was such a terrible miss that we need to try someone else again. We have participated in one penalty shootout this season. Of course, that was the loss to Cremonese in the Coppa Italia. Stanislav Lobotka was the player that missed in that shootout. So if you include Lobotka's miss, then Cavada was the fifth different player to fail to convert a penalty kick for us this season. Victor Osiman was stopped by Alisson in the Liverpool match. Piotr Zielinski was stopped by Alan McGregor in the group stage uh, against Rangers. And then Matteo Politano hit the upright against Sampdoria in Serie A. And his penalty against Milan wasn't particularly convincing either. We mentioned earlier that it was arguably more difficult to score after the red card Luciano Spalletti kind of touched on that in his post-match conference as well, where he mentioned that when a team gets a player sent off, they tend to just drop back and defend. At even strength, they were far more likely to attack, which then creates more space on the park, and, and that allows us to exploit it, which is you know our strength, right? This is why we're so good in the Champions League, because... You think of our opponents and said, yeah, they tend to just sit back in a low block. Even the big clubs, that's what Inter did against us. That's what Juve did against us. They just sit back and defend and try to take that space away. Whereas in the Champions League, especially as you get further into the competition, you're playing against clubs that are more confident in their style of play. And and they're not going to change just to prevent you from beating them, which plays into our strengths. Despite them sitting back and defending, probably just hoping to get to that second leg with a a fighting chance. We still scored that second goal, which I think was pretty important. And what a goal it was, right? I mean, unbelievable. For a player like Vada, you're playing in the Champions League round of 16 for the first time. You miss a penalty. And you know what? I noticed something that, of course, the chin up by Victor, phenomenal teamwork. I love that. But I noticed watching the game back, Kvara's face walking out of the change room at halftime was like a man on a mission. It's unbelievable, his mentality. If anything, the fact that he missed, I feel like it even made him more ready to do something amazing. And it's one thing to have the skill. And by the way, phenomenal pass by Zambo, first of all. Let's give him credit. It's one thing to have the skill to take the ball down and do your spin and then to do a back heel, no look pass, but it's the actual, just the thought, just thinking of doing that, forget about having the skill to do it, which we know he has, he can do anything skill wise, but to think of it in that moment and to just know and trust that your teammate is going to be there. And the weight of the pass too was just picture perfect. I mean, we are talking about one of the most naturally gifted attacking players that I've ever seen in my lifetime following Napoli. And the fact that it's this kid's first ever season playing in a top five league and he's barely 22 years old is just absolutely mind-blowing. And also credit to our amazing captain, Di Lorenzo, who finds himself as a right back 
in a position of like a, an attacking midfielder with his weak foot and buries that first time perfectly into the corner. What a play. I mean, definitely assist of the season and one of the most amazing goals that I've seen in this year's Champions League as far as the overall play. All those things that you mentioned, the football IQ, the technical ability, and all of that happening really in a split second, the awareness of where your teammate is, he really is living up to all of these different nicknames or, or players that we compare him to, whether it's Cavaradona or the Georgian Messi or the Georgian George Best. Like These are the traits that those players have or had, right? One of the things that concerned me, and I raised this last episode, was that I felt like we started to become a little bit too dependent on moments of brilliance on these these wonder goals that we were getting from Cavada and Osimen. Now, this goal involved a moment of brilliance with that play by Cavada, the backheel pass, but this was actually a brilliant team goal. It was the kind that we were accustomed to seeing, and I mentioned this last time as well, that we were accustomed to seeing in the first half of the season that I felt like we started to get away from. We completed 18 passes in the buildup to the goal. Nine different players on the pitch touched the ball or made at least one pass in the buildup, including Alex Meret. The only two players who didn't, which was totally fine, was Osimen and Lozano. And it wasn't just the play by Cavada. Like you mentioned, the pass by Angisa, the way he spun that pass around the defender. And you mentioned the finish by Di Lorenzo. And I think you put it perfectly describing him more as an attacking midfielder or as like a right winger than than as a fullback because, you know, think of when Mario Rui takes a shot and God love Mario Rui. We all love Mario Rui, but, you know, he can't hit the broadside of a barn sometimes. And, you know, and that's because as a defender, and I'm the same way, obviously I'm not anywhere near that level, but the defender's mentality is put your head down and put your foot through the ball. And that's not what Di Lorenzo did on this play. He steadied himself and he just placed a controlled shot, as you said, with his weaker left foot into the bottom corner. Huge, huge goal. I loved the reaction also, you know, going back to that mentality and, and just the the team morale and the togetherness of this team. I think it was Cavada that basically put him in a headlock and kissed him on the top of the head. That's his captain, right? You know, and Osimen posted, I think, on Instagram with similar thing. There was a picture of Di Lorenzo and and he tagged him in and, and said, my captain, right? Like there's there's a real togetherness about this side. So that was a, a great team goal. The other goal was from a lethal counterattack and both goals involved a ridiculous pass, first from Lozano on the first goal and then from Angisa on the second. Then was this the best performance from each of Angisa and Lozano since the start of the calendar year? By calendar year, do you mean 2023? Yeah, De- definitely. Definitely, I would say that. With Lozano, I think part of it is that he's a form player and he's been slowly working his way back into form. But part of it is also what you mentioned earlier about we have a little bit more space in the Champions League. And that's why I think we start Oliveira over Rui, not just because of his height, but also because he's more physical and goes for more runs. Against a low block, Rui is better because he has that unlocking ability with his passing that Oliveira maybe doesn't have. Likewise, I think Chuki just offers that fast counter ability. And we've seen this year, he's really improved with his crossing. And this was probably one of the best because of the bend that it needed. It wasn't just a straight cross. It it had the perfect curve around the defender 
right to Victor. And then 30 seconds later, they recreated almost the identical goal. Okay, it was offside, but it's just like, was like, whoa, like, are we watching a replay or is this happening again? I think he was phenomenal. I've always been a Chucky supporter. Of course, I know he's a player with limitations. He's not like a Kabara or a Victor level player, but he is a player who I think on form can be highly effective for us. And he was that. And as for Zambo, you know, we had a little bit of a debate with some of our friends in the group chat of whether or not Zambo is the kind of guy who maybe turns it on more for, for big games. And perhaps that could be a part of it. But I also think that it was just a matter of time before he got back to the Zambo we know. He was phenomenal in the first half before the World Cup. And afterwards, he's been a little bit below par. And, and I think that this was his, his breakout game to say like, no, okay, the Zambo that the top, top level Zambo is back. And so, yeah, I would, I would agree. Probably since the World Cup, it was both of their best game, maybe for different reasons. Yeah, and, and not to suggest that Anguisa has been bad or terrible or anything like that, because he always works hard, he always presses, he always covers a lot of ground, but he was so good in the first half of the season that he just didn't quite look the same since returning from the World Cup break. And it was our friend Mo Salad who had tweeted that, you know, he thinks Anguisa maybe just got bored of Sedia. I don't buy that, but I can see how Mo arrived at that conclusion because in this very important Champions League match, he took his game up to another level, or at least back to that level that he was playing at before the World Cup. And again, he seemed to be covering every blade of grass on the pitch. It was the type of performance, interestingly, where if you actually pull up his stats on who scored or Sofa score or one of these sites, you would have no idea how good he was in this match because it wasn't a great sort of statistical performance. Like he had, I think it was no tackles, one interception. His pass completion rate was around 80%. But this was the type of performance where the stats just don't pick up the things that you're doing. Like maybe if you have more advanced metrics that measure things like how many times you press an opponent, or I don't know if they, they measure how a player blocks passing lanes or things like that, you know, the pass before the pass on, on the second goal. Actually, that one I think is measured, but he did so many things. You know, there were times where he'd seemingly get dispossessed or fall over and and then he'd pop back up to his feet and somehow maintain possession. He almost scored that way. He almost scored from his backside, you know, on a play like that. So, yeah, I think this was Angis's best performance since uh, returning from the World Cup. On Lozano, he was named man of the match. He's now started five of Napoli's last six matches in all competitions. And actually the only one that he didn't start in was really just so he could rest for this match because the Sassuolo match was only four days prior to this one. I mentioned this in my four takeaways piece on the website, but I don't know if he's playing regularly because he's playing well, or if he's playing well because he's playing regularly, but either way, he is enjoying his best form of the season. You mentioned that cross, the cross to Osiman on the first goal had to be perfect because Osiman was actually pretty well marked in the area and he's trying to stay on side so he can't get ahead of the ball or ahead of the last defender so Lozano had to put that ball in a very tight window and he had to have the bend on it 
for it to get around the defender and, and get to Osiman. So an incredible cross. And as you said, he did it again, like literally right from the kickoff, he won the ball back. And unfortunately that time we were slightly offside. He also came close to scoring a goal of his own, which is the only thing that I guess you can say has been missing during this sort of run of form that he hasn't scored. But as long as you're delivering those crosses, I don't think anyone minds all that much. Um, you know, he hit the upright. I mentioned that earlier before we won the penalty kick. And then he had a, another strike on target, which is powerful, but basically straight at trap in the second half. You mentioned his pace as well and, and the openness of the game. I thought Philip Max and Tuta really struggled with his pace on that side of the park. And again, that goes back to the playing style of these different teams in the competition. Of course, you can't exploit space without having key players with certain qualities. One of those players, of course, is Victor Osiman. He's now scored, I think it's 10 goals in his last eight matches in all competitions, which is just off the charts. Basically, him and Marcus Rashford are just the two most informed players <laughs> people can't see your face we this was another debate that we had today with uh, with Steph uh, you want to touch on that a little bit the whole Manchester United informed situation I mean no look credit to Manchester United I've always I've always liked Marcus Rashford I think he's a, he's a talented player I, I remember um when Mourinho was bringing him into the the team when he was a Manchester United coach and he had Zlatan as the main striker and, and Zlatan was saying, wow, Rashford's a good player. My only point with Manchester United is like people are giving them so much credit. Like, wow, Manchester United, they're getting in great form in the Premier League and they're doing well in Europa League. And it's like, yeah, but they're also a massive brand, by far the biggest global brand in England. And, and I think other than Real Madrid, the most followed team in the world, they have a, a world-renowned coach in Ten Hag and they've spent hundreds and hundreds of millions. So it's only, they only seem to be overperforming because of how underperforming they've been for the last decade. Now that's not to say that they're not good and that's not to say Rashford isn't a good player, but I just think that the accolades that they're now getting is just, how should I put it? It's like a Ferrari beating a Honda in a race and you're like, wow, look at that, how great the driver is. It's like, yeah, like, what do you expect? They, finally, after a decade of spending hundreds of millions, they have a, a they're having a decent season. They're third in the Premier League and doing well in Europa. But I just think that like we have to give them credit, but within perspective of the size of the club and how much they spend. That's basically my point. Yeah, I think another way you can kind of look at it, and, and it's something we've talked about quite a bit on the show as well, and, and many people have talked about this, is if you compare how the team is performing against expectations at the start of the season there's a pretty big difference between these two clubs, right? To your point, with all of the resources that United have, and it's not just investments in players, it's also investments in facilities, it's investment in the youth system to be able to develop more talent, it's all these different coaches and medical experts and all these different things that go into it. Now, granted, probably all of the top English clubs have all of that stuff, but you know, when you're spending that kind of money, it's almost like an expectation that you need to be competing for the title. Whereas what Napoli have done is very different. Obviously, it's we've relied on scouting and identifying talent and developing players and building a system and scouting for the system, right? Like, actually, I meant to tweet this out when, when De Laurentiis was talking to the media, but I, I forgot and then it was kind of stale. But the other day before the press conferences for this match, 
De Laurentiis was in the media room and it almost became his own press conference because he started talking to people and then they whipped out their phones and started recording. And next thing you know, everybody's asking him questions. And he touched on how he reminded everyone <laughs> that he said this team is going to compete for the Scudetto and nobody believed him back then. And, and that was kind of a, a pat on the back for how well the team scouted and how confident they were in their scouting at the time. And then someone asked them a follow-up question. I want to say it was Manuel Guardasola from Caltronapoli 24. One of those guys from Caltronapoli 24 asked him if he saw Spalletti's face when he made that comment because that was something that a lot of people were pointing out at the time that Spalletti's, the look on his face was like, what is this guy saying? You just gave me this guy from Turkey, this other guy from Georgia. I lost all my best players. I, you know, I, I got a couple of new guys that haven't been here. And I really liked De Laurentiis' response, which is that, and it's not anything to be offended by if you're Spalletti, but what he said was, you know, Spalletti is the coach and that's his expertise. He's focused and most of his time goes into coaching and tactics, right? And player development. He does not have the time to know about every player that's out there. That job belongs to the sporting director. And I feel like in a way... Cristiano Giuntoli knows what Spalletti needs even better than Spalletti does himself because, again, he doesn't know what's out there. But Giuntoli, the key is that those two talk and what Spalletti has to do is convey to Giuntoli what qualities he's looking for in the players at different positions. And then Giuntoli could go find those guys that have those qualities and, and you know, it's a sort of a team effort. So, yeah, I think... It's different how we've succeeded compared to how United have. I think it actually goes even beyond that because I know for a fact that we were tracking Kim Min Jae and Kvara before Spalletti was ever our coach. Okay, because yeah. Yeah. because the reason why uh, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, the reason why I was so confident on Kim in the summer and saying he is the guy if Koulibaly leaves is because I saw a report from a year and a half before that that Juntuli had mentioned in an interview or someone had reported that Juntuli chose this guy, Kim Min-jae, if Koulibaly ever leaves, he is the only guy that Juntuli wants to, to replace him. And that's when I started to research Kim Min-jae. And that's why I knew about him. And I looked into him because I was such a big Koulibaly fan. I'm like, who's this guy that, that is the only guy that can replace Koulibaly? I got to see what, why we're looking into him. Where I think that Spalletti may have influenced a little bit the transfers and where I want to give Spalletti the credit is, I think that there's something to do with the personality of every player we signed this season. Not Kvara and Kim, because I think we were looking into them to be the long-term Insigne and Koulibaly replacement for probably a lot longer. But like every player who came in has a very strong mentality and personality. Ostigard, Oliveira... Simeone, Raspadori, personality-wise, they're all totally different players, but they all share a certain hunger, grinta, positive energy. And that is one commonality that we have. And, and I, I do want to give Spalletti credit for that. Perhaps he told Juntili, like, you're the best. You scout who you want to scout in terms of quality, but make sure that everyone who comes in has the right personality. And, and I think that that's one thing we've also really nailed. Yeah, and I mean, the one guy that you have to give Spalletti credit for, which is not a huge name on the team, but to your point, has that right, the right mentality, the right attitude. He's become a bit of a father figure for some of these guys is Juan Jesus, right? A guy that everybody had ridden off. He was barely playing at Roma. Spalletti brings him in, and 
when called upon, he's been very good, right? He's played a role with whether it was Koulibaly hurt last season or Rachmani hurt this season. So, yeah, and I think, you know, you're right because De Laurentiis also reminded everyone in this sort of ad hoc press conference that they had been watching Cavada for years, right? So that would have been before Spalletti joined the club. Going back to the point of having the right qualities to play in that system, the other guy that is absolutely critical to Napoli's style of play is Stanislav Lobotka, you know, with his his spatial awareness, his low center of gravity, his, not just his spatial awareness, but his, also his awareness of where everybody else is on the park. Then once again, Lobotka showed how important he is to this system and why he pretty much has to start every game for us. Hey, look, from one director to another, you know, because I'm I'm a director in my life and he's a regista. I yeah. mean, we should really get all the credit. You know, the be- if a movie is a great movie, it's the director who makes it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but truly, truly, if you took Lobotka out of this team, we would not be the same. He controls everything. He orchestrates everything defensively. And offensively, he recycles the ball. He's always in the right position. He blocks the space. If he needs to join in and become part of a back three with the defense, he does that. He's great with the short passing, long passing. His ability to turn, to keep the ball, to be press resistant, to press himself. I mean, if we're talking about a modern day regista slash central defensive midfielder, I don't know that there's, uh, based on his form, at least for the last, let's say, season, season and a half, there's nobody out there who I think could come in and replace him and do as good a job as he's doing. It's truly remarkable how good he is and he keeps growing. And, you know, we were talking about, you mentioned uh, they had Lozano as man of the match. And again, I love Lozano. I've never been a Lozano hater and he had a great performance. But to me, the man of the match was, 1A was Lobotka, 1B was Kim. For me, in this match, those two guys were my men of the match. I would have probably had Lozano in third. But Lobotka was just absolutely everywhere. And again, great pass to help create the first goal as well. To Because I think it was Lobotka to Chuki, right? Yeah, he intercepted the pass from Goza. And intercepted and then launched yeah. Lozano down the wing. I mean, I'm genuinely in awe of the guy. And... Anybody who doesn't have Lobotka on their radar, meaning non-Napoli fans, they will have a rude awakening. And if you think about all of our great big games this year too, like versus Juve, the 5-1 or any, he was one of the best in that. I mean, the guy is just unbelievable and his consistency and his level of play. And also, you know, we, we've had other great registas in the past during the ADL era, namely Jorginho, who's a player that I absolutely adored phenomenal player but i think that the level we're seeing right now out of lobotka might even be better than peak Jorginho because he's also more mobile even though he's not a, a very athletic guy and he's not super fast but he gets all over the pitch more than Jorginho did and his passing is phenomenal and ju- just like Jorginho, great passing you know hard to get the ball off of but i think this is almost a, a, a even a one notch above at least the Jorginho who played for us, you know, it's just unbelievable that this guy was like out of shape and on the bench. And now for me, he's probably the best in his position in the world. There's no one else I'd rather have to be the regista of this team. 
Yeah, shout out to Jorginho, by the way. He scored a fantastic goal on the weekend. He didn't get credit for it, but it was a winner. I think it was in stoppage time. Ended up being an own goal because it hit the crossbar bounce staff. Uh, Emmy Martinez goes in the back of the goal. And then Arsenal still scored like 10 minutes later, still in stoppage time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare because they were very different style players. Like Jorginho, a bit more finesse and the way he passed the ball and, and moved on the ball. Laboka has a bit of an offensive flair to him as well. We only get it occasionally, but he'll sometimes... Almost like a running back in American football, he'll see a, a hole and and burst through it and, and go vertically downfield, right? I mean, he doesn't do it often, but when he does it, it tends to be quite successful. What really stood out to me in this match was his defensive play. He was just covering so much space and closing down so many players. And obviously, that's the way we press. It's a team effort, right? If, if everyone's not doing it well enough, then it can be broken down pretty easily. But still, like he seemed to just be completely sharp on point he he knew exactly where he needed to be he contributed offensively as well in the 31 matches that we've played in all competitions this season Lobotka started in 30 of them <laughs> the only one that he didn't start was against Lecce but Ndombele was kind of poor in that one so he still came on at halftime and played the rest of the match only Alex Meret, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Kim Min Jae, who you also mentioned and I completely agree had also a fantastic match the funny thing with Kim and I guess you can say the same thing with Lobotka is these guys have played so well, so consistently all season that we've almost just started to take it for granted, right? So I think it is important that we call it out every once in a while because, and in Kim's case, I think the other thing that why he's another player who's so critical to the system that we play is he is so fast that when we are pressing high, which we do quite often, and we expose ourselves to the counterattack, he's usually the guy that races back there and, and beats the striker to the ball because he's so quick. And, and it's little things like that that just we take for granted or maybe go unnoticed. But only Meret, Di Lorenzo, and, and Kim Min-Jay have played more minutes than Lobotka has this season. This might be a debatable take, but I, I think a lot of people would also agree with it. But I actually think Lobotka is the most important player on this team. And that's basically down to the fact that we don't really have a quality backup for him. Like people will say Cavada or Osimen are the most important just because of how much they've contributed offensively. But, you know, when Osimen was out, Simeone and Raspadori stepped in and we didn't lose any matches. When Cavada was out, Ali Felmes stepped up and we didn't lose any matches. Now, I'm not saying that if, if we sold those guys that, you know, Elmas or Simeone would do the same thing on a full 38 game season, but over, you know, a short period of time with an injury. Whereas I look at Lobotka and I think, you know, if he got hurt, I feel like we would see a significant drop in the quality of our play. And and for me, that's why he's the most important player. Like, yeah, we have Diego Dema, who's probably the most suitable replacement, but there's a reason why he's not even had besides the injury hasn't even gotten a look against some weaker opposition, even against Cremonese and the Coppa Italia. You know, we're trying to kind of convert Gianluca Gaetano into a regista. I think that's maybe more of a longer-term project for Spalletti. I don't expect to see much of that this season. I suspect Tangi and Dombole would be the most likely guy that would fill in. It's not his natural role, and he was, I thought, quite poor off the bench in this one as well. So for me, I think that's what makes Lobotka the most important player on this squad. The last question I wanted to ask you is, 
something that I touched upon last episode as well, but I, I wanted to get another perspective on this, and that is, do you think that Spalletti waited too long to make his substitutions? Not really, no. I think he's been pretty spot on. I guess part of me is just like thinking, how can we even question him? Because surely he knows best and the form we've been on has been phenomenal. And also maybe he was just thinking, you know, the players who were on there maybe gave us the best chance of maybe getting that third goal. And he just thought if we could maybe put it to bed, then maybe we can really rotate in the second game or something like that was probably what he was considering. And also there's certain things to keep in mind. One is like, as much as we want to protect someone like Victor, he's also like very young. Kvara, very young. These guys can play more than certain other players. You know what I mean? As far as a few days in a row. I think that he got it pretty spot on. To me, it's almost a, a non-issue. I don't know if maybe I'm just living the moment so so much that and and just enjoying the ride that I'm I'm maybe questioning less than I would in the past. But I, I'm I'm kind of of the mind of like if it ain't broke don't fix it things are going well we're up to nothing maybe he was wary of giving them a little bit of hope or whatever or he just thought the guys on the field would be best to to get the third goal or I'm not really sure or maybe he's thinking some of the guys on the bench are going to play a lot more versus Empoli so I don't exactly know what he has in his mind and how he's making these calculations but at the end of the day when you walk away 2-0 against Frankfurt, and we, we're, we've we been saying we could have scored even more, I'm pretty happy with it. It's hard to question anything when, when you're having so much success. The Osiman substitution, which was, you know, we made our first changes in the 80th minute. Osiman came off in the 84th minute. That was the one that I was a little bit critical of, only because we had just seen Osiman seemingly come close to getting some sort of muscle injury. Like even Spalletti said after the Sassuolo match that Osiman felt something weird in his thigh or in his leg or whatever. And, and that's why he came off and, and Spalletti was kind of crediting him for just sort of the physical sort of understanding of his own body and, and having the wherewithal to pull himself before it became something more serious. So after seeing that and knowing, you know, we're up to nil, we're up, a man we're playing against a team with 10 men and we still have a guy in Simeona who seems to score every time he comes on anyways you know to me I think it might have been he might have been playing with fire a little bit there but to your point I mean they're they're running all kinds of tests they have doctors and, and medical staff that are, are checking all these things I'm probably nitpicking at this point because there's so little to be critical of but for me, I think I would still like him to make some of those substitutions a little bit earlier. And we'll see what happens in, in the Empoli match. I mean, I could still see him starting Osiman even against Empoli, but maybe pulling him a little bit earlier, 60th minute, 70th minute, something like that. Because again, I mean, one of the things that has been maybe a bit of a blessing in disguise for us, I, I don't know if there's Coppa Italia coming up this week or next week, but because we're not in that competition we're back to playing one game a week until the second leg against Eintracht Frankfurt, which is not for a couple of weeks now. So we have the luxury of being able to play guys. And even in the buildup to this match, we were playing once a week for about a month. So it's different when you think back to the sort of post COVID seasons where it was like two games a week for really long periods of time. And that's when you really have to rotate your squad or, or risk severe injury. When you're doing it two games this week, 
for the first time in a month, and then you have another couple weeks with only one game a week, you could probably get away with it. And, and as you said, with younger players especially, they're a bit more durable, a bit less uh, susceptible to injury. Okay, so that's all I wanted to cover today. But Vin, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I guess the only thing I have left to just, I want to reiterate and add a little bit on top of my praise for Kim specifically in this game. Kolo Moani, as you mentioned, is a very informed striker. He's one of the, the more informed strikers in Europe. He's a very fast striker as well. And Kim was just absolutely perfect. But then also, I, I, I think I have the stat memorized. I think it's Kim completed 30 long passes from his half into the opposite half which is a record of the, this year's Champions League of any player completing the most long passes, which, again, it just shows you, like, yes, he's fast. Yes, he's strong. He's good in the air. But also, and what I think a lot of people underestimated, because even the people who I was hyping up Kim about were saying, yeah, but the one drop-off is going to be his ability on the ball, you know, because Koulibaly was so great with the long passing and on the ball. But Kim is unbelievable with the long balls and with the long passing and Kim is, apart from Lobotka, probably one of our key playmakers in that he starts, a lot of times the play goes through Kim. You know, Meret, who I've been super critical of in the past, but who is having a very good season this season, one of the things we've done is just actually not allow him to really start the play that much. You know what I mean? I think because that's kind of a weak part of his game, we've been smart enough to just kind of not make the goalie be a playmaker anymore like Ospina was. We're actually just basically most of the time he just gives it to Kim and then Kim will start to play. Either he'll go to Lobotka or he'll go to a fullback or whatever. And so Kim's ability on the ball, breaking the Champions League record of long passes, as well as just his overall defensive game, just is something I, I wanted to highlight. It's just unbelievable the level he's at. No, absolutely. There was one long ball that he, I think he played to Lozano that was just insane. Like the, the accuracy of the pass from midfield and and he dropped it, you know, for Lozano right before the the byline, and he crossed it into the area. The other thing is that you know he is a technical player; like he will occasionally get forward and join the attack, and and he's not afraid to do that. And then as soon as we lose the ball, he is just sprinting back to get back into position. I actually, you know, I always post my first half thoughts during the halftime, and I was gonna put in there that. Kim was just flawless in that first half. And then he got that yellow card, so I took it out. But, I mean, aside from that, which was a bit of an odd play because it by chance got through his legs and then he just fouled the, the player to stop the attack. But otherwise, yeah, he was phenomenal. Kolumani is not an easy player to stop. So to keep him off the score sheet, he was looking a little bit threatening, but for the most part, didn't do a whole lot. Okay, that is where we'll leave it. Vin, thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure as always, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. So you can find Vincenzo on Twitter at VinBNapoli. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at ForzaNapoliPod. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at Patreon.com slash ForzaNapoliPod. It's entirely free. There are no set tiers. But it does help me to continue to produce content both on the show and on our website at fortsanaplipress.com. If you're not able to do that, you can also support the show by leaving us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. I will be back very soon with a mini pod to preview our match against Empoli on Saturday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. 
Fortunapoli sempre. Sports Social Podcast Network.